acts as a buffer, it acts as a protective barrier to the influences and the dangers around it. And so yes, there are boundaries, of course, but those boundaries aren't hindering us or hurting us, they're actually empowering us. You're listening to a sermon series titled Rated PG, preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. Let's open up in our Bibles to the book of Song of Solomon. And this sermon today is rated PG for pastoral guidance. So we are going to spend the next eight weeks talking about romance, intimacy, relationships, desire, marriage, and sex. Uh, There was a wedding where the bride and groom were going around at the reception to meet with all of their guests, and they came to a table of someone they'd never met before. And uh, as they were talking to these guests, one of the guests said, "Um, just so you know, the first two years of marriage are, um, are terrible. And the bride said, oh, really? How long have you been married? And the lady said, two years. (laughs) So we all need marriage help. Um, Or if you're not married today, we all need love life help. We all need relational help. And thankfully, we can talk about these things uh, without blushing, because there's an entire book in our Bibles that discusses these things. So we're going to spend the next several months looking, expositing uh, the Song of Solomon, also known as the Song of Songs. And Uh, As we dive into this today, today we're going to do an overview of the book, kind of a bird's eye view, and then we're at the end of the day today, we're going to talk about sexuality and where we've gone as as a Western culture, where we've gone as America, so you can kind of see where we're at today and how we can kind of recapture what the Bible teaches, and this series will kind of be a... um, a deep dive into sexuality. So I'm so thankful for our kids' ministry uh, being up and running so that we can dive into these specific things. So um, the Jews, when they would come to the Song of Solomon, um, it's an interesting book because it's not referenced in any other Old Testament book, neither any New Testament book. In fact, the Jews every year on the Sabbath of Passover will read selected readings from Song of Solomon. They'll do that kind of as a look back and a look ahead. They'll look back at the prior year and, um, and look back at the exodus from Egypt and all of God's faithfulness. And then they'll look at the coming year and look ahead at the grain harvest. Uh, and so for those who are uninitiated, the Song of Solomon is, uh, has some enigma and has some, well, as you begin to open it, has um, a very unique place in the canon. As you open the book, you go, oh, this is way different than any other book in our Bibles. In fact, Uh, When you look at this book, it doesn't have a list of genealogies. There's not a list of laws. There's not even historical record. It doesn't read like other narratives seem to read in the Bible. And there's really no lessons that stand out as something that we should adopt necessarily. In fact, when we read this, we realize this is kind of a poem. And this is a poem that celebrates sexual fidelity in a committed and romantic marriage. And when we look at it that way, we realize this is a song, as the title suggests, between two lovers who are passionate about each other and who cherish and appreciate their relationship. The world would make jokes about marriage, that it's a ball and chain and it's not monogamy, it's monotony. 
and the culture around us will mock these things we're going to look at and caricature it, but we're going to see this beautiful love story uh, unfold. And so as we read different types of literature in the Bible, we have to read them differently. In other words, when we open up different parts of the Bible, there's some sections of Scripture that are historical narratives. So you read it and you go, oh, this is history. This is a story of, of a historical event. Other sections of Scripture are apocalyptic, and so we need to read them a little slower with an interpretive lens. There's, of course, prophecy, and often prophecy has a, a near fulfillment and then a far or future fulfillment. Uh, there, of course, is poetry, and we can't read each one of those the same. We need to understand what we're reading. And so this particular type of literature that we're going to study is meant to be sung. So today we are going to sing. No, we're not going to do that. I'm just joking. But it is interesting, right? We're going to read and study line on line a poem. Now, all the men here this morning are like, wait, hold on. You dragged me to church to read poetry, right? You're not excited about that. But men, it is a, it is a series of poems about sex. So you're welcome. We can stay and talk about that. And poetry is written to be poetic. There's a certain cadence, there's a certain flow of words that come out in poetry. Now stop squirming and getting uncomfortable. We're gonna spend eight weeks talking about this stuff, but let me just give you an example. Lord Byron wrote this, and um, don't confront me later, but I am a guy who likes poetry, okay? I, I, I'm, an in, I'm more of an inner, like an indoor guy, all right? So I'll go out and shoot with you guys, and then I'll write a story about it later. Um, but here's what Lord Byron says. He says, she walks in beauty like the night of cloudless climes and starry skies, and all that's best of dark and bright meet in her aspect and her eyes, thus mellowed to that tender light which heaven to gaudy day denies. Now that is a very poetic way of saying the next sentence I'm about to share with you, which if you're like me, you like to go to the mall and just go directly to what you need and bypass all of the fluff. Here's a, here's a non-poetic way of saying that. A woman in a black dress with shiny beads looked pretty when she walked by. <laughs> so, so there's a, a poetic way of saying that and a direct way of saying that. Okay? So what we're going to look at in the Song of Solomon is a lot of poetry. Okay? This is within the poetry section of our Bible. So the Jews would have the law, and then they would have the prophets, and then they'd have the writings. So this is a section of scripture in the writings, or what we would call poetry. So let me just show you what each of these different poetry books look like. Uh, kind of in the center section of the Old Testament. So, of course, we have Job, very apt uh, this time of year, they're 2020. talks about suffering and sovereignty. It's more poetry, though. Psalms, of course, we've studied before, uh, that show us that God is awesome. God is worthy of worship and obedience. The Proverbs show us how to find true and lasting success. Uh, they're not promises necessarily, but principles. And then Ecclesiastes is a wonderful poetic book written almost from the perspective of someone who's not a follower of God, under the sun. This is life apart from God, and really it's meaningless. And then we have the Song of Solomon, and this is a book that's poetic, and it's a love song between a husband and a wife. So what we're going to dive into and digest uh, is written as poetic lyrics, sung by men and women about sexual fidelity in a marriage. In a marriage. So after the word wedding is used in chapter 3, verse 11, the word bride is used 17 or six times in the next 17 verses, chapters 4 and 5. You're going to read language like, set me as a seal upon your heart or on your arm, or I am my beloved, my beloved is mine. So this is a song about joyful conjugal love. 
A lot of people actually believe this was written uh, to be sung at weddings, to, to, like a wedding singer would come and, and sing this song at weddings. And, and I like what one person said about uh, this. They said the sexual revolution of the 1960s hadn't yet reached Jerusalem in 960 BC. In that time and place, there were only two kinds of love, truly free love between a man and a woman in marriage and sexual slavery, which is found in adultery and fornication. So what we're going to see is a stark contrast to the ideals and the norms that are around us in culture. You might ask today, why is that in our Bible? Why is this in our Bible? Now, I want to give you kind of a continuum, like a spectrum. So over here on this end, a far extreme over here, people would reject the Song of Solomon and say, you know, that shouldn't be in the Bible. It's too erotic. And if we were to take it out and make it its own book, we'd have to put Fabio on the cover and no kids are allowed to read it and it's just inappropriate. In fact, some Jews won't allow their children to open up uh, the Song of Solomon. And I will agree, there are some real really interesting and specifics that we're going to talk about that we don't normally discuss on a Sunday morning uh, in expositional teaching, which uh, is, is rare. It's different. However, we have to remember that all scripture is God-breathed, according to 2 Timothy 3.16, and therefore it's useful. John says of Jesus that he's the word incarnate. He's the word made flesh. Uh, it's written of him in Hebrews that Jesus is, it's written of him in the volume of the book, meaning the entirety of the Old Testament. Uh, in Luke 24, Jesus goes to two of his disciples on the road to Emmaus, and he begins to recount to them all of the times that um, he is mentioned throughout the Old Testament. And so one of my favorite things to do in my morning quiet time is to study all of Scripture and see where Jesus is illuminated, see where the gospel is in the text. I mean, he said it himself in John 5. 39 and 40, where he said, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Now, you can read the Bible your entire life, but if you've not responded to the gospel, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then you've missed out. When you read the Bible and you don't see the gospel, that's, I would liken that to going to the eye doctor and you can read every single line except the E. You're looking at it and missing the entire picture and point of Scripture. It's not just a list of rules. It's not just a story about Israel and these things that happen throughout time. It's not just good principles to live by. It's a picture of God's redemptive work for his church through Christ. And so we have this great narrative through all of Scripture and we see Jesus as we look at the pages of our Bibles. And so I want to encourage you, if you don't yet know Jesus, that you would repent of your sin, trust Christ, and that as you open your Bible, you will no longer try from a religious, self-righteous standpoint to try to obey the principles in the Bible, but you would see Jesus, look to him, and by faith allow his finished work to be at work in your life. And so the Bible speaks primarily about Jesus. And the Song of Solomon is not an exception to that. So I would say, Let's not go to this extreme and reject it as erotic literature that's, that's godless. And let's not go over here too far to the extreme where we're pushing Jesus into every little typology. Now, some commentators have done that. From Origen to Spurgeon, some have pushed Jesus into places he doesn't belong. So there is a literal interpretation that the author intended when he wrote the Song of Solomon. 
I love church history, and when I look at some of these different allegories, I mean, commentators have allegorized every thigh and breast and kiss in the Song of Solomon. Here's an example. You have your Bibles. Look at chapter 1, verse 12 with me. It says this, chapter 1, verse 12, uh, ESV. While the king was on his couch, my nard gave forth its fragrance. That phrase, while the king was on his couch, one commentator said, clearly, this is the gestation period of Christ in the womb of Mary. Clearly. If you didn't know, now you know. Uh, Then we have verse 13. My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh that lies between my breasts. One person said that is clearly the symbol of Christ and the soul of the believer lying right between the two commandments to love God and to love your neighbor. Uh, So listen, there are subtle references to spiritual love. And so as we study this, I want us to look at it from a bird's eye view and see that God, his love for Israel, his love for the church is allegorized as love between a faithful husband and at times an unfaithful wife. Jesus, we know, is the bridegroom who will one day be united to his bride, but not in a blasphemous sexual act, but in the intimacy of a covenant relationship. We know this. You heard this at your wedding first, or, uh, in Ephesians 5, 32, where Paul said, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. What was Paul talking about there? He was talking about the relationship, the love and submission between a husband and an earthly husband and an earthly wife. But then he says, but that's a picture of Christ and his love for the church. So God wants to relate to Israel, to relate to the church in a same kind of idea of a covenantal love marriage relationship. So in this book, we're going to get broad strokes of the brush of that. We're going to see a sweeping picture of God's love for us. Isn't that amazing today, brother and sister in Christ, that God loves you, that God loves us? that that he has been faithful to keep his covenant, even when you and I were faithless, maybe even this week, maybe even this morning. We've sinned, we've broken fellowship, and yet God has continued to be steadfast in his love for us. We don't deserve that, and yet he stayed faithful to his covenant. So we're going to see that broader picture of his love, but as we get into this, the the author's original intent is to show us Uh, what a marriage relationship looks like. So I like what one person said. They said, consider the Hans Christian Andersen children's tale, The Emperor's New Clothes. You guys remember that book, that story? So just as the emperor's ministers and subjects affirmed that he was indeed wearing clothes when he was not, interpreters kept telling themselves and their readers that the song is solely about spiritual love, but it's not. Just as a child saw the reality of the situation, that the emperor is naked, so do we see that the characters of the song are naked. They are naked and unashamed, just like Adam and Eve in the garden. And today we should share in their lack of shame. For the song is a song that Adam could have sung in the garden when Eve arose miraculously from his side, and it remains a song that we can and should sing in the bedroom, in the church, and in the marketplace of ideas. All right, so commentators have said that the Song of Solomon is the most difficult book in all of sacred scripture. A ninth century Jewish rabbi said, the Song of Solomon is a lock for which the key has been completely lost. One 19th century German Lutheran said that the Song is the most obscure book in the Old Testament. Whatever principle of interpretation one may adopt, there always remains a number of inexplicable passages. So, 
since 2020 is already the impossible year, why not dive into the most difficult book of the entire Bible to interpret and to lean in? Now, listen, we've had some challenges this year. We've had some challenges as a church. You've had some financial, emotional, uh, spiritual challenges. They said that statistically in the U.S., uh, more people have filed for divorce in like the first half of this year over the summer than in, in memorable time. And of course, statistics, I don't have for that. But uh, we've been challenged. Many of us in our marriages have been challenged. And so I'm excited to study this book because I believe some of us will be rebuked. Some of us will be uh, challenged. Many of us will be encouraged and all of us will be equipped. So I'm excited to learn um, what it means to have a faithful romantic loving relationship whether you're married or you're single this is something that we all need uh, to lean forward and to learn so um, let's start with chapter one we're only going to look at verse one today um, and then we'll talk about sexuality so look at chapter one verse one it says in the esv the song of songs which is solomon's another translation says solomon's song of songs obviously this is being attributed to solomon but who is Solomon? Solomon, of course, is the king. He's the son of David. Uh, and he ended up becoming the wisest, richest king, you could say, in all of human history. So I just want you to think of all the wealth that you and your family have. How much do you make? Don't yell it out. How much do you make a year? Now, let's multiply that as a family times, I don't know, 40, 45, 50 years of, of work. Uh, and so let's add all that up. Now let's multiply that in this room. All of us here, we're from Lakewood Ranch, so probably in the multi-millions, we're all together over 45 years. All, we'll throw all of our collective wealth into a pot. Solomon would say, that's not bad, slow clap, and that's a slow Tuesday for King Solomon. Okay? He was very wealthy and very wise. Uh, this is the son of David. We know David of David and Goliath fame, but it's also David and Bathsheba infamy. You see, David's family had a lust issue. Uh, Dean just read it, but Solomon had 700 wives, 300 concubines. If you have a calculator, that's a different woman in your bed every night for over three years. These are not handmaidens to help out around the house. This is a harem to attend to Solomon's sexual needs. And God did not commend or command that behavior, by the way. That is, that is in stark contrast to what God had commanded. In fact, we read it, but look again at 1 Kings 11 in verse 2. God said, you're not to marry these women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel. You're not to enter into marriage with them because they'll draw your hearts away. Uh, and notice verse 1, King Solomon, he had a lust issue. He loved many foreign women. It goes on in the rest of verse 2. Even though God had forbidden marriage to these particular people, because when you marry these women, they'll draw your heart after their false gods. But it says in verse 2, Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses, 300 concubines. And notice this, his wives turned away his heart. So verse 4 says, when he was old, Solomon, uh, his heart was turned away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. So what began as a small lust issue in David with Bathsheba, and of course was rough, it compounded in the life of his son Solomon. His heart was drawn away from the Lord because of these various women whom he married. And that's why I believe, many scholars and pastors, commentators believe, because you hear that and you go, wait a minute. If that's true, if he had, if he had all these wives, 
Like, I'm married to a wife, and it's hard enough to be intimate with one woman, let alone 700 women. So how on earth is he qualified to write a book about faithful, loving marriage? How could Solomon have written this? Well, I believe, many commentators, scholars believe, that he wrote Song of Solomon at the end of his life, almost as a foil to what he had done mistakenly. In other words, he's almost writing it saying, if I could go back and do it over again, this would have been the right way of achieving true, lasting joy in a marriage relationship. I did it wrong. And I went after lust instead of doing it the way God had originally designed. Almost to say, don't do as I do. Now notice in verse 1 it says, it's called the Song of Songs. Um, Now in Hebrew, when you say something like that, what you're saying is it's the song of all songs. It's the greatest song ever. So when you say that Jesus is King of Kings and Lord of Lords, um, that's basically saying that of all the human kings, there's, there's one who is um, more excellent, more trustworthy, greater than all kings. He's greater than all lords. He's King of Kings. The Holy of Holies, the place in the temple that um, the Shekinah glory of God resided, that is the most holy of all holy places. It's the Holy of Holies. So this is the song of all songs. Now, I don't know if you knew this, but this is fascinating. Solomon wrote a lot of songs. We don't have a lot of them, but look at 1 Kings 4.32. It says on the screen that um, Solomon spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs numbered 1,005. Now, you don't look impressed this morning, but if you want to see how hard this is, go home this week and write a proverb. And you'll realize, oh, that's hard, actually. It's hard to write a proverb. Write a song. I've done this before. Just write a worship song. It's not that easy. And so, and so he, do, he writes 3,000 Proverbs and 1,500 songs. And yet this is the greatest of all songs that he wrote. So what I want to do is I want to get a quick synopsis of the book so you can see where we're going in the next two months. And then we'll talk about sexuality. So uh, we can thank Daniel Aiken for this kind of plot summary that I'm going to read. Uh, He's got some great work on the um, Song of Solomon. So here's what uh, Daniel Aiken says on the screen. He says, King Solomon lives in the 10th century B.C. He's Israel's wisest and richest king. He owns vineyards all over the nation. One of them close to the northernmost part of Galilee near the foothills of the Lebanon Mountains. And while visiting this vineyard, Solomon meets a country girl called Shulameth. She captures his heart. He falls in love. For some time, he pursues her and makes periodic visits to see her at her country home. Finally, he asks to marry her, or marry him. Shulamith gives serious consideration to whether she really loves him and can be happy in the palace of a king, but she finally accepts because she too loves him. Solomon sends a wedding procession uh, to escort his new bride-to-be to the palace in Jerusalem. The book opens as she's getting ready for the banquet, wedding banquet and the wedding night. The details of their first night together are intimately but beautifully described, and the first half of the book closes. And then he says this, the second half of the book deals with the joys and problems of their marriage life. She refuses his sexual advances one night, and he departs. And Daniel Aiken says, sound familiar? She, realizing her foolishness, gets up and tries to find him, eventually does, and they have a joyous time of intimacy again. While she lives at the palace, the new queen often longs for the mountains of Lebanon where she grew up. She finally asks Solomon to take her there on vacation. 
He agrees and the book closes with their return to her country home and their enjoyment of sexual love there. Awesome. You guys didn't agree with that, so apparently you're nervous to talk about this stuff. We need to like let our guards down a little bit. We're going to dive into some things. So let me show you what we're going to talk about in the next uh, eight weeks. So essentially every week we're going to dive into the text, and here's where we're going. Today we're looking at the overview, sexuality. Next week, attraction and romance. We'll talk a lot about singleness, that singleness is not a problem to be solved with marriage. Okay, so we'll talk about that. We're going to look at communication. Don't miss that one, please. This is a good one. Uh, we'll talk about marriage, of course, in chapter 3. We'll look at sex and intimacy in marriage. That one is definitely one that the kids and parents of teenagers make the judgment call. We'll give you notice on that one, but we will dive in to some specifics there. Uh, we'll talk about after the honeymoon uh, and then how marriage will deepen and then kind of the legacy that we leave in our marriage or how a love relationship can mature in chapter 8. So um, to do this a little bit differently, here's what the format's going to look like. Uh, it's a little bit similar, but we're going to mix it up a little bit. So what we're going to do each week is that we'll, of course, do observation. We'll look at the text and the context. And then we'll ask, well, what does this mean? What does that actually mean in the writer's intent? And then we'll apply it. Well, okay, how does this relate to us? It'll be very uh, applicable. But what I don't want to miss out is where's the gospel? Where do we see the gospel here in this text? Uh, and then one thing that we haven't done is that this study, we're going to have a time of Q&A. Not here in the service, but we're going to invite you with a link to ask questions. So if you're like, I'm curious about that, I have a further question. You can send in a question and then we'll answer them on our website and blog. So you can read the answers to the question every week. All right. So as we look at this book, I want to spend some time today on sexuality. Uh, and so as we look at sexuality, there's one of three approaches that we often have with this topic. And I'm speaking to Christians, okay? We all respond in one of three ways, typically. We either respond as the prude. So here's how we respond. We go, sex is gross, and therefore God must be against it. Almost like God created Adam and Eve to enjoy marriage, and then a few minutes later, he looks down and goes, what are you guys doing? Stop that. I didn't design you for that. But clearly, God has designed us to enjoy um, sex. So some people would say sex is gross. The opposite would be the partaker who says sex is God, and I'll enjoy it whenever and with whomever. And then we have this third view, which is how we sometimes look at sexuality, which is the Pharisee. This person would say, I'll act like I agree with the Bible, but in secret, I'm going to walk in sinful sexual immorality. So sex can either be an idol that we worship or an act that we detest. But I want to go on record. I'm, this is a little controversial. I believe that Christians should have the most free, the most fun, the most considerate, loving, intimate, and desirable sex on the planet. You can amen that this morning. Amen. Okay, one of you. Someone says, are you just trying to grow the church, Pastor? No, I'm not trying to grow the church. I'm trying to grow the Christian. You see, I believe that this will help us uh, in our understanding of sex because too many Christians are prudish when they need to enjoy the gift that God has given them. But on the flip side, there are too many Christians who are living in sexual immorality. They say in the average church, at least 40% of the men are currently today addicted to pornography. And that's a problem. That's something that needs to be addressed. 
And, and so we need to understand sexuality and, and that God's not blushing when we talk about these things. He created our bodies the way they are, uh, not only for procreation, but also for enjoyment. And so today, our culture has questioned the Bible's position and has completely reversed the Bible's stance on gender, on sexuality, on identity and marriage. They would call us a part of the group that's just binary when it comes to gender. And so what we're not going to do is skate around these issues, but like the Bible, we're going to directly confront them because the world has their view and it's contrary to the scriptures. We're going to answer that biblically and we're not going to shy away from it. We're going to directly confront it. So um, I want to talk about where we got to today. How did we go from the 1950s to today. Uh, clearly, we've gone in some bad direction, okay? And so um, I wasn't there in the 50s, but on September 9th, 1956, Elvis Presley, I think we have a picture, he appeared on the Ed Sullivan Show. And the cameras were instructed to zoom in and up to catch him from the hip um, up. Why was that? Well, because his hip swain left and right was found to be completely insensitive and even inappropriate. In fact, Time Magazine had a reviewer write these words. Um, they said, when it was over, parents and critics, as usual, did a lot of futile grumbling at the vulgarity of this strange phenomenon that must somehow be reckoned with. Now, if you go back and watch that clip, you're like, wait, what? How is that inappropriate? It's Elvis just kind of dancing. It doesn't look wrong at all. Now, I don't want you to Google this, but you compare that, Elvis Presley on Ed Sullivan, to a singer currently named Cardi B. And Cardi B has just come out with a song. It sounds like some of you parents know about it on TikTok. Uh, Cardi B has just come out with a song that I can't even Google because my, my uh, internet blocker software will flag my pastoral accountability partners and say he's looking at something. Because it's so pornographic, the song that she's just written. Uh, so where do we go from the Carpenters? to Cardi B. Like, what happened? How do we go from wholesome to um, vile? I want to give you a little history on this. This is fascinating. So in the 1940s and 50s, a man by the name of Alfred Kinsey published two books. He looks like a real winner, let me tell you. Alfred Kinsey wrote the Kinsey Reports, The Sexual Behavior in the Human Male and Sexual Behavior in the Human Female. Um, apparently, he interviewed over 6,000 women and what happened is when this um, results hit the mainstream, the society was shocked. They couldn't believe that, um, that the cultural norms that everyone was believing were challenged. In other words, what they seemed to find in the study was that women actually um, were much more open to talking about these things. And there was much more taboo that no one talked about that people were practicing behind closed doors. So it absolutely shocked and caused outrage to the general public. Um, now, the American Statistical Association condemned these reports. Why? In fact, you guys have heard of Abraham Maslow. He's the guy that did the hierarchy of needs, the triangle, not the food triangle where you're supposed to eat bread and all that, but the hierarchy of needs, that little triangle. He condemned the study because he said the, the representative sample was inaccurate. He said if you picked three people in the random culture, that would have been better than 300 of Kinsey's people. What Kinsey ended up doing was going into the jails and finding people that were specifically open to talking about those things. He found people in his sample size that loved to talk about sex that were more sexually deviant. And because of that, 
the sampling was skewed. And so it's been rejected. The volunteers were rejected for bias. One person said this. One doctor said this. And this is why this is important for us. She said this, Dr. Judith Reisman, for today. America's growing libidinous pathologies, which now is taught in schools and reflected in our fine and popular arts like Netflix, the press, law and public policy, listen to this, largely mirror the documented sexual psychopathologies of the Kinsey team itself. So the Kinsey team was biased and was deviant sexually and made it seem as though everyone in culture, this is where this notion of, hey, guys think about sex all the time. That's directly out of the Kinsey report on the male. Uh, now, here's where this gets real. Kinsey's goal, according to the Rockefeller Foundation, sponsored by them, this is what his goal actually was. To take off the mask and the smoke screen. It was to supplant what he saw as a narrow procreational Judeo-Christian era with a promiscuous anything-goes paradise. Kinsey was single-handedly responsible for producing a tremendous sexual awakening in the West and in America. In fact, one student um, wrote his college thesis on the sexual behavior in the human male. And he was so impacted by this report that he went on to found a magazine that he wanted to help further that sexual awakening, not through hardcore, but softcore pornography. And the magazine was called Playboy, and the man's name was Hugh Hefner. Hefner said, if Kinsey was the researcher, I became his pamphleteer. And so here we are, a generation later, seeing the effects, the devastation, not only in what we talked about earlier in abortion, but the devastation in STDs, the devastation in broken families, the devastation um, culturally in every aspect of our lives. And you and I, as a society, were duped with a loaded report. And so that has caused the average person on the street today not the average Christian, but the average person out in the world today, to have these types of views. Let me put them on the screen. This is what the average person out there kind of believes in this postmodern culture. They would say sex has no consequences and should be casual. Hey, sex with multiple partners, that builds experience. That's what the world would say. It's a physical act that can be done with a male or female. And women secretly desire sex constantly, and the only thing that men think about is sex. It doesn't necessarily affect any other part of my life. That's just something that I'm fulfilling on the side. It's my body, and I'll do as I please. And people are responsible, unless they get an STD or get pregnant, then they're irresponsible. Now, are those things what we believe? Are those things what we practice? Of course not. You see, in the Song of Solomon, we're going to see a wisdom admonition that kind of functions like a refrain over and over and over. We read it in, in Song of Psalms 2.7, where he says, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field. Apparently the gazelles and the does are standing by as testifying eyewitnesses. He says that you not stir up or awaken love until it, until it pleases. You see, wisdom would exhort us in what the world says, hey, don't, don't repress your desires because that will affect you emotionally. No, wisdom would say that you are to restrain them. And that's not repression. It's not keeping you from enjoying something. On the contrary, it's protecting you from all the dangers of unbridled sexual expression, all those dangers that we can be exposed to. So the song of songs will show us God has provided a better way, a better way, a place of intimacy and fulfillment and pleasure. 
and one that even brings him glory as it at the same time protects us from the devastation of the world around us. I want to close with an illustration we didn't have time to in first service. We were teaching our son Aiden about sex when he was younger and having that talk, right? Parents, that's a fun one. Um, but we enjoyed it, having that conversation, because it's such a, a helpful and eye-opening conversation. And we talked about this bird in a cage. The world would say that what we believe as Christians is like putting a poor bird who just wants to be free, locked in a cage, and you put him in a bird cage, and now he's just confined, and he, there's, there's boundaries and limitations. And how could we ever repress the natural desires that we have? But see, that's an inaccurate illustration. I like to look at the bird as being in a birdcage, sure. But that birdcage is outside. And there's cats, and there's, there's predators, and there's all these animals that want to take the life of the bird. And that cage acts as a buffer. It acts as a protective barrier to the influences and the dangers around it. And so, yes, there are boundaries, of course. But those boundaries aren't hindering us or hurting us. They're actually empowering us. And so my prayer is that as we study this book, what I'm asking for you, if you're married, if you're married to a believer, this is, this is a little bit awkward, I would love for you to read ahead every week with your spouse. Maybe do it over candlelight. I mean, you're welcome, bro. Just go for it. But maybe read over candlelight. Maybe read ahead and look at chapter one this next week, and we'll dive in and, and talk about these things. My prayer, though, in all of this is that we would come to understand God's design for marriage that we would kind of recapture uh, what the scriptures have taught us about intimacy. Even though the world has lied and has brought us down some devastating places, we can kind of recapture it and learn about his undying love for his people. Even as we become, I believe, what could be the greatest lovers in the world. So uh, that's my prayer for us. Amen. Um, we're going to close in prayer. And then we're going to sing together the great hymn, The Love of God, as we consider God's love for his people. So bow your heads with me, and let's pray together. Father, thank you for your love that's demonstrated in the cross of Christ. This morning, we just acknowledge that this world has lied to us. Some of us have fallen into that lie, and we have great mistakes that we've made prior to coming to know you, maybe even after knowing you. There may be some men here today who, and even women who are struggling uh, with addictions to some type of sexual immorality. Lord, would you free them? Would you bring uh, restoration and repentance? Lord, help us to take seriously this charge to not awaken love in any area that's outside of the, the amazing uh, boundary of the sanctity of marriage. Lord, protect us as a people. And Lord, we thank you that our marriage here on earth is a greater picture a demonstration to the world of your great love for your bride, that even though we're unfaithful, you consider us radiant. And Lord, you're one day coming again uh, and we'll be enjoying the marriage supper of the Lamb as you've gone to prepare a place for us. Lord, thank you for your undying love for the church that was willing to die and then rise again. So we love you, Lord. We thank you that we'll be studying and growing and being stretched in these areas. Lord, would you encourage our faith today? We love you, we worship you, and we're excited to study your word together. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. at the Port on Lena Road. 
You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.